I am speaking on Matthew 12 and 13. Please turn to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, Will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So the beginning of this chapter, Jesus is walking with his disciples everywhere Jesus goes, from now onwards his disciples are with him, and his disciples are hungry, so they, in the grain fields, which are pro- it's probably not one more than a, a Sabbath day's walk from the temple, because otherwise the Pharisees wouldn't have been in the fields looking at them to catch them out. So they were in the fields, and they were hungry, and so they took the grain, and the top of the grain, the ear of the grain, they crushed it together in their hands like this, and then they, would eat this, they were eating the seeds of the grain because they were hungry. Now Leviticus 20. 3.22 says that you shouldn't thresh wheat on a Sabbath. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and say to Jesus, Jesus, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath and they are threshing wheat and they are eating this wheat. So Jesus has an incredible response. He says to them, don't you know what the Bible says 
I mean, you Pharisees, haven't you read about this in the Old Testament? It's a little bit sarcastic. Haven't you read in the Old Testament that when David was hungry, he and his companions went into the house of God, into the temple, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was only lawful for the priests to eat. They went and ate the bread. What Jesus was saying here was firstly is referring to a story in 1 Samuel 21 verses 1 to 6. In this story, David is fleeing from, for his life against Saul. He has been anointed as the king and Saul is out to kill him. So he's not reigning king, but God has anointed him and now Saul wants to destroy him. So David is fleeing for his life with his, with his followers. He has a band of misfits who've joined him. And he gets to the house of God. He gets to the temple. And Ahimelech something is the priest at the time. And he sees David and his companions. And actually, the priest went and got the bread. And it was probably a Sabbath because every seven days they changed the bread in the temple and gave it to David and his companions to eat. It actually cost him his life because Saul came and when he found out, killed him, all the priests and his entire household for doing this. But David, what, so what God, Jesus was saying to the disciples was, actually, he said David went into the temple and got the consecrated bread. He was even bolder than what had actually happened in the story because David had been given the bread. So what Jesus was actually saying to the Pharisees is, you are coming and complaining that my disciples are eating on a Sabbath. Someone, he says, he says to the disciples, greater than the Sabbath is here. He was talking about himself. Now, if in, the, in those days, the, the Sabbath to the Jewish people was so holy. There were three things that set them apart from the rest of the world. It was the Sabbath, circumcision, and the temple. The temple was where, in the Old Testament, Jesus dwelt, or God dwelt with his people in the temple. So when they walked through the desert, everywhere they went, they carried the tabernacle with them, the presence of God. So the temple was everything to the Jewish people. It was their source of pride. It was their source of identity. It was where Jesus dwelt with them in a physical form. So when Jesus came and said to the Pharisees, I am greater than the Sabbath. And he went on as we read and he said, I am actually greater than the temple. We cannot actually underestimate the shock value of Jesus' response to the Pharisees at this time. He was saying, David was the Messiah, that David was the anointed king who was not yet in ruling. I am the anointed Messiah who is actually not yet ruling over the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. And Jesus was saying even more than this. He was saying, I am the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath is no longer a day of the week. It is actually a person, and I am that person. And he was, actually, and he was saying, by giving them this, the Pharisees this story about David in the temple, he was say, and he went on to say that something greater than the temple is here. He said to them, I will destroy this temple, and in three days' time, he says it will rise again. And actually, after the death of Jesus, 
the temple was destroyed. But can you just try and imagine what this did to the Pharisees? The Bible says that the Pharisees walked away and actually plotted how they might kill Jesus because he had said such words of authority, claiming himself to be the Messiah, claiming himself to be the son of David, doing away with the Sabbath, saying, I am the Sabbath, doing away with the entire identity, the temple, saying, I will destroy this temple, because what he was, Jesus was actually saying was, in the temple, there are sacrifices that are bought. I am going to be the ultimate sacrifice. This temple is going to be destroyed. And he said, as we read, he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so this is what Jesus was saying, just in giving this story about David. Um, so, so I, I, I mean, I don't think the Pharisees were probably expecting this. They really was, were trying to get Jesus to say, your disciples are eating grain. They, they're breaking a law on the Sabbath. They couldn't have imagined how Jesus responded with such a way of authority, something that would be like a red rag to the bull to cut them to the depth of their identity and to call them out and say, actually, I am the Messiah. So Jesus, when he spoke, when he spoke here in, in, this, in this story to his um, disciples, uh, to the Pharisees, he spoke with such incredible authority in who he was as the Messiah. And then he goes on to my most beautiful, favorite part of Scripture and says, and then it said, he refers to it, uh, um, goes back to what it says in Isaiah the prophet, says, Behold my servant who I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. So here is the Son of God claiming to be the Messiah, hitting the Jewish people to the depth of the identity with such authority. And then Jesus said, and then God says about Jesus, Behold my servant. This part of scripture, more than anything else, makes me adore this God that I serve. This part of scripture, more than anything else, makes Jesus worth everything my life could ever offer. When God says about his son, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. We, Levi and I went to South Africa for two weeks to see my family. I hadn't been back for five years. When my dad died, my mom went and lived on a farm. She's been living there for about 20 years. And a lady came to work for her. Her name is Winnie. She lives in a village nearby. And my mom and Winnie became really good friends. She has an incredible sense of humor. Obviously, they live together and work together. And when I was growing up, we had at this very tradition, it's very South African, you have nannies when you grow up. Who here is South African had a nanny? <laughs> okay, it's just... Don't judge us, it's life. It's what happened. So we, when I grew up, we had three nannies that worked. I had one that worked with us when Julie and Levi were little. My sister had one. And my, my, we had three nannies that were sisters. And Teresa, who worked with me, she, um, 
wanted to do her grade 12 in matric. I was 20 years old. I was studying to be a teacher. So she would wake me up early every morning, and I would teach her Macbeth. And she went on, and she got grade 12. She worked in a pharmacy and then went on and got a career. So Winnie cannot read and write. And um, Cheryl's nanny retired, so Winnie went. And so she works for Cheryl from a Monday to Friday till about 10 o'clock. And then Saturday she goes to visit my mom, if she hasn't seen my mom during the week. Now Winnie's sister, Gugu, works for my older sister, and her daughter works for my mom. And so we have this family, <laughs> family all living together and have become very involved in one another's lives. When my mom asked me what I should bring from Canada, I said, Mom, what do you want me to bring from Canada? I had to bring Winnie a new dress for my mom's birthday because we were having a party, a new outfit for Mitchell's 21st. I had to get a... My whole bag was packed with all the things we had to take. So when Winnie has been working for Cheryl for about two years now, Cheryl took her for lessons because she wanted Winnie to learn to read and write and to get... And my mom's done this, wanted to do the same with Chengi. But this is what it's like having Winnie in our house. When I wake up in the morning and I would go to get a cup of coffee, Winnie knew, since I'd been there, which coffee cup was my favorite coffee cup. So before I'd even walk to the kettle, that coffee cup was there waiting for me. I was turning around, they drink instant coffee to get the coffee powder out of the fridge, out of the cupboard. Winnie's already at the fridge getting the milk to bring the milk next to me to make my coffee, to clean up, to look after me, and to serve me. One thing Winnie and her sisters, they couldn't get was Levi and I left our shoes at the front door, because we're Canadian now. So the first day I left my shoes at the front door, Winnie washed my sneakers and put them back the next day. <laughs> Levi, we were at Janine's house, and we were in the lounge, and Gugu picked up Levi's shoes, and she was on her knees putting them down at his feet in the lounge, because he'd forgotten his shoes at the door. And Levi's like, this is so humbling. This is so humbling to live like this. Every day I woke up, my bedding was washed, ironed, and new. I wouldn't even be allowed to have a wash basket. I said, Winnie, I need a wash basket. Because when my washing was dirty, she wanted to take it from me. She didn't even want me to go to a wash basket to put the washing in a wash basket. So when Cheryl wanted to take her for lessons to teach her how to read and write, she's like, uh, why would I want to? I, I don't, this is... I want to live here. I want to work here. I don't want a job that's better. None of the family want to leave my family because their desire is to serve in every way to make us happy. Before I can even think of something, she wants to serve me. And that is what I've not experienced in a long time, that level of servanthood. But somehow this word servant of the Son of God who created the entire universe, who has all power and all authority that God called my servant, that God became a servant to those that he created to serve our every need as God. He knows us, he knows everything about us, and his desire is to serve. And he came, the Bible says, and he took off his outer robe and he went on his knees, the Son of God, to wash his disciples' feet to serve them 
and said, you go and do likewise. I think somehow in our culture, this degree, this what it looks like to serve has lost its value and lost the significance of the absolute honor that God has given us to serve and how he demonstrated it to us by becoming a servant. The Bible says, by being obedient even to the place of death on a cross. And then God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Bible, that scripture goes on to say that Jesus didn't come to scream and cry out in the streets to make his voice heard. He came to serve And he did not come in power and authority to overthrow the Roman Empire. It was the most difficult thing that anybody could ever understand that Jesus came as a man of peace. When our world system is to get your own way, to fight, to overthrow, in every way Jesus came, the Bible says, as a servant. And then God looked at him and said, With my servant, my soul is well pleased. At this point, after, the, after Jesus had said that he was Lord of the Sabbath, he went into the temple, as we read, and he healed the man with a withered hand. The Bible says that he healed everyone of every disease at every time in every circumstance. That is the promise that God has given us as the bride and the church. That God heals every disease always. And then he said, my kingdom come. My kingdom has come amongst you. When Jesus then went, and the Bible says he was crucified, in Matthew 27, 51, it says that the temple, the curtain was torn from top to bottom, and we could enter into, we can enter into the presence of God When Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says we've become the temple of the living God. Therefore, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the fullness of God, dwells among us now. So in the then, before those days, what Jesus was saying is, here my presence was, heaven was on earth, here in my presence, in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, in the temple, Jesus Christ, and now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the ones that God says, as it is in heaven, let it be on earth. God's desire is for us, as the temple of God, to usher in the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. When we were at school, we used to say the Lord's Prayer every day. I know you people here say the Canadian anthem. So the, the Lord, every morning at school, we would say the Lord's Prayer. And when Jesus, when his disciples, the disciples looked at Jesus, there was one thing about Jesus' life that they desired. It wasn't the miracles when he broke the bread and fed people. It wasn't when he raised the dead. There was one thing that the disciples desired in the life of Jesus Christ when they walked with him for three years. They said, teach us to pray because they recognized the power of that was in their lives through Jesus Christ praying. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And God said, and Jesus said, this is what he said, 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Exalt Jesus Christ. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, God is saying, my kingdom is your kingdom. It is your authority that I have given you to heal every disease. The Bible says, give us this day our daily bread. Provide every financial need for you and the community. Forgiveness and then celebration. That is how we walk in the kingdom of God, God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And as I've been thinking about this, I was like, God, what, Jesus, what was that that you destroyed? Because the Bible says that Jesus conquered death. Because he didn't destroy the Roman Empire that was the reigning, they were the reigning power at the time. He didn't actually even destroy the Pharisees. He rebuked them, but he didn't destroy them. The thing that Jesus Christ destroyed when he humbled himself and was crucified was the accusation that Satan brings against his creation to stop them from being the fullness of what God has created where through the church, through you and I, we demonstrate this kingdom that is in heaven here on earth. The devil's power is to come through accusations. Two weeks ago in ladies' prayer, we prayed against accusations against the body of Christ. And we have felt that the enemy's onslaught is to accuse the body of Christ. And he has come in and he has caused scars so that people are not walking in the fullness of who they are because of accusations of people, of words that have been spoken. And that I believe that what God wants to do this morning is break a spirit of accusation over us as a community and over our lives. Is God really that good? Yes, he is. Are we created in the image of Jesus Christ? Yes, we are. Is God's desire for us to walk in the fullness of what he has promised? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Through our lives, to our families, to our cities, and to those around us. God's desire is for us to lay hands on the sick every opportunity we have so everybody will be healed and the kingdom of God will come. God's desire is to fulfill every financial need so that his kingdom will come. God's desire is not to have strife and disunity. And God's desire is for us to celebrate in the goodness of who he is. And that's what we're going to do when we take communion is to know that that is what Jesus accomplished when he was crucified. He smashed every accusation that your life circumstances, that you've told yourself, or that people have told you over your life, that have gone into your heart and caused what the Bible says, bruises of Satan, and wants to bring us into the fullness of what he has promised for us. And so I wanted us to take communion, but I'm just going to go on to chapter 13 quickly and talk a little bit about the parables. And then we will. Okay, chapter 13. Before I get to chapter 13, it said, it, uh, when it says, Behold my servant, with whom my soul is well pleased. 
it goes on to say that Jesus will never break a reed that has been broken or bruised and he will never snuff out a candle that is, that is burning or smoldering. What they would do is that they would use reeds and that would be a, they would use it as measurements. So obviously if it's bruised or if it's broken in some or bent in some way, it has absolutely no use. If you have a candle that's smoldering, it means there's no more oil and it's just making a big, a big smoldering smolder and so you can't actually see light. There's no, can, there's no light. And it says, that broken reed and that smoldering wick will never be snuffed or broken by Jesus Christ. That is what he has come for in every time. And that is the hope for the Gentiles. This is the hope that God has. is for those that are broken and those that are in that position, we cannot ever in our lives be the accuser in any situation, over any person, at any time. We align ourselves with the Pharisees and we do not walk in the authority that Jesus Christ has given us. When we extend grace, when we extend mercy, when, as it says in Philippians, whatsoever things are true, pure, lovely, and a good report, if we dwell on those things, if we believe the best in people, if we stop judging and extend grace, mercy, and kindness, the kingdom of God comes among us as a people. And that is the hope for the Gentiles. That is how Jesus Christ defeated the accuser. By not ever speaking against those that people and the world had given up on. And in our lives and situations where we thought that we had to do something or be someone, or words have said that we, we could, this is what we should be, Jesus came and defeated that by living and dying for us to, to show that example of what a servant is. Okay, chapter 13. The parables. Do I have time to read this parable or should I just explain it? Read it. Parable 13. Chapter 13. I'm going to read that again because I love it so much. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Is that the, not the most beautiful God that anybody could ever worship? How could we not love a Savior and a Father like that? Chapter 13. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places, where they did not have much soil. 
and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Then it goes on to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and deceitfulness of wealth choke the world, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the, soil, the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, and indeed bears fruit and brings forth, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So now, in this chapter 13, Jesus walks out of the house and he gets onto a boat because in chapter 12, he's healed everyone. So, I mean, he's got quite a crowd following him now because of these miracles. He's, and he goes on, he feeds people, he's healing people, the crowds are coming. So Jesus gets onto a boat with his disciples. He pushes a little bit away from land and he starts to preach and he starts to tell stories in parables. The disciples notice the difference and they say to Jesus, Jesus, why are you talking in parables? And they ask him. And Jesus says an, ast an astonishing thing. He says, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to the crowds, these are it has not been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is giving the same message, but it is the soil of the person's heart that receives or does not receive the message. So he speaks, so Jesus says, I am coming, in chapter 12, I am coming to defeat, I am coming to destroy the temple. You are going to be the temple. I am the Sabbath rest. The kingdom has come among you, he heals everyone, and then he goes, in chapter 13, he, he gives six or seven parables where he teaches on what the kingdom of heaven looks like. So in this, this, chap, in this first one about the soil, the first soil, they are they're living in Palestine. So he's, Jesus is telling them stories, a parable is a story that relates to their everyday life. And I was thinking of something that you would do in Canada. I don't know, like, on a Saturday morning when you go to a garage sale, I can't remember what would be Canadian, that would be completely different from South African, that would be whatever. This is what a parable is. They're farmers. So they, they're farming wheat, they farm barley. He give, Jesus gives them stories that relate to their everyday life. It's like, why would you tell the story in a parable? 
And I thought of some of the reasons why Jesus would speak in a parable is that first, the Pharisees are out to kill him. They are literally hanging on every word that he says so that they could accuse him. He's not giving the Pharisees any ground if he's telling them a homey story about a parable that has some kind of a hidden meaning. They can't really pinpoint him as, be, as speaking against Caesar and the government. So, first of all, against his enemies. Secondly, to make people think. Thirdly, what we heard here, it was to, to divide into two groups. Those that would understand the parables and those that wouldn't understand the parables. And then, he wanted, Jesus wanted the, the, the people to actually go deeper than just receive the miracles of healing. They wanted, Jesus actually wanted them now to search out the wisdom in which he was telling them. And he spoke to them in parables, stories that related to their everyday life that they, could, that they understood. And the first parable that he does actually explains why he's teaching in parables by this parable of the soil. And in this parable, Jesus is saying that the first soil, the first seed, it's the same seed and it's the same person sowing the seed. So the seed goes on the side of the road and the birds come and they eat that seed. So that seed doesn't even take root and grow. The second, second time, um, the sower is coming, he's sowing seed. And in Galilee, the, there was a bedrock. The, the land was very rocky. The same as in Tortola, it's very difficult to grow things. They grow quickly, but they don't have a root because of the soil. So they die. The third story, the third example is they grow up, they grow in the soil, but there's a competition against light, um, space, all these different things. So in all three stories, none of the seed produce fruit. And so what Jesus was actually saying, it's actually the soil, it's the condition of your heart as to if you can receive the kingdom or not. And Jesus turned around and said to his disciples, to you it's been given the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And what I think Jesus was saying is this. He was saying, it's a principle of discipleship that enables you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Many can follow, many can follow, many can be taken by the crowd, the, the miracles of Jesus. But when we become disciples of Jesus Christ, to you, it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so what God, God was saying, it's the condition of your heart as to if you receive the kingdom or not. And then he does other parables, and I'm just going to do one more of the other parables. Is the parable, so he does the parable of the, in chapter 13, it's a, it's a sower with seed. And then the second is tares and wheat. If you read on, it says that, the, he, the, the um, sower, he sowed seeds and it started to grow. And in the middle of the night, the devil came and he planted weeds and the two grew up together. God harvested the wheat and then the weeds, the Bible says, he sent to eternal death. So that was a story there. The third was also about a seed and it's a seed of a mustard seed. So I'll read you that one because this one is the one that I love. Chapter 13, the mustard seed parable. 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. 
But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. I felt when I was preparing for this that for some among us, the Bible says that you become weary of doing good. Where the things of life have worn you down in a way. And God is saying that for your situation to change, for this kingdom to come, on heaven, here on earth, all you need is a seed, the the faith the size of a mustard seed. And somehow I thought it was more of me having more faith, me welling up this ability to believe God for what he's promised me. But I think that the greatness is not in the size of my faith, but who my faith is in. The greatness of the God in whom my faith is. That takes all works of me, that takes all ability to perform and be anything for Jesus, because I've come to the understanding of the greatness of this God that I serve. The Bible says in Zechariah, do not, um, do not despise the day of small beginnings. And for some of us in situations, they seem almost hopeless. And we've been worn down by certain things in our lives. And, we, and God is saying that this morning, it's just God can take something really small because of who he is and transforms it into greatness. That's who he is. That's what he loves to do. He takes every impossible situation that with man things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. If we come with a seed the size of a mustard and put our trust and our hope in a God who can turn every situation around for good. It says God can take the most unpromising situation and turn it into triumph and joy. And it's just what I've written. Jesus spoke of the mustard seed, which was a small beginning, which would lead you to God's own view of success. God can turn your inconsequential beginnings into a glorious ending. The way to become great is to become small. God asked Gideon to get rid of his army until he was left with 300 men and then defeated the greatest enemies of the day. God isn't looking for us to have perfect faith, but faith in a perfect God. It's not great faith, but faith in our great Savior. Do you know when Jesus was crucified, there were very few people that were around at the time that witnessed it. It seemed like such a small, inconsequential thing in the history of the world. He had his mom and a few men that loved him. Some of the crowds that he had healed were there, but they left soon. But to the rest of the world including Satan himself. No one was aware of what was happening. It seemed so small. Yet it was the greatest event in the history of the world. God took the smallest thing that people weren't even, they were going around their day, with their day not even knowing what was happening, and he turned it into the greatest event of history. And in our lives, I, just, I feel that God wanted, wanted this morning to to bring us into a place of faith again. Not because of our faith, but because God turns everything around for good. Because he is so 
incredible. It's who he is. He can't help himself. It's what he does. Will you actually believe the greatness of this God that we serve? He's able to turn strife into peace. He brings breakthrough financially. And I believe the greatest thing that God wants to do to express his kingdom on this earth is to bring complete and total healing in every situation. It's what his word says. It's who he is. It's his name. He is the healer. And so we're going to take communion. So we're going to hand it out and then we're all going to take it together. So can someone, John, you please hand these out. So just take a cup and bread. Or you just hand it down the rows maybe. Thanks, John. Craig, you're such a servant. Father, we thank you for your word that does not return void, but accomplishes everything that you have promised. Your word says, Jesus, that you became the word and dwelt among us. And as you created everything on day six, you said, it is finished. You died on the cross, and your last breath was, it is is finished. From creation until the fall of man, until your son Jesus paid the price, Satan was prince of this air, the Bible says. But when Jesus died and his last words were, it is finished, he said, all sickness is finished. By the stripes of Jesus Christ, you are healed. He said, all division is broken. When there's unity, I command a blessing. The last prayer that Jesus prayed was, God, make my disciples one, as we are one. Your body was broken. Every part of your body was out of joint, so we could live in unity. Your desires for forgiveness... And ultimately, Jesus, when your throne became a cross, you silenced the accuser over our lives. And in the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we silence every word of accusation over every member of this community in the name of Jesus Christ. Every failure that would make us think that we are a bruised reed or have no significance, we break its power in Jesus' name. Father, we pray that this morning, as we've heard your word, that firstly we would desire to pray more and more, Lord God. And then, Lord Jesus, that we would understand that we are the temple of the living God. 
that the fullness of the Holy Spirit dwells within us. The fullness of God dwells among us as your temple. Heaven is on earth through us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In heaven, what is in heaven, so let it be on earth through our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would take a hold of us and that we would believe your words over our lives. Father, where we have been in accuser, I pray that the fear of God would stop us from speaking death. The word says the power of life and death is in the tongue. And that you have given us the ability to create life through words that we speak in every situation. And Father, as a mustard seed is such a small amount of faith. Father, we thank you this morning and we believe that our faith is in a great God. Father, I pray that you would let us see the privilege that it is in serving, that your kingdom comes and we are the hope to the Gentiles. Father, we recognize that that the devil's desire is for us to be broken, consumed in our own self-pity and brokenness so that we will not be the hope of the Gentiles, listening to the words of the accuser over our lives. But God, we ask this morning that as a community we would rise into your words that you have spoken over us, that we will believe the word of the Lord, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you for your blood. And we declare... Just declare with your mouth healing over yourself, over anybody that you know. In every situation, every disease, and every sickness, according to the word of God, your kingdom come, your will be done. We will believe the word of the Lord because it's what you've promised us. We thank you for your blood, Lord God, that was shed for us. We thank you for your blood that heals and covers a multitude of sin. We thank you that you have no recollection of sin in our lives. And so, Father, as a community, as we drink this, as a representation of your blood, I thank you that every word of accusation over every one of us would be broken in Jesus' name. Father, as we take this cup, we thank you for financial provision. It's our inheritance. And we thank you, Father, for unity, because where there's unity, you command a blessing. And so, Father, we recognize that you overcame Satan. And we, as your bride, the only way the world will see what you have promised, Lord. There is no other way. You have no other plan other than us. And then you know, 
with Jesus when he finished this, he celebrated. And I'm not talking about debauchery, but I thought, I read once and I thought, you know, John's disciples came fasting and praying. Jesus' disciples, they said he was a wine bibber and a glutton. Whose disciples do you want to be? And so he asked us to, like, seriously celebrate, but not like that. 